to Luke 21, 21st chapter of Luke this evening as we resume in our study in the Gospel of Luke. As I thought of the content of the chapter before us, my mind went to that, that particular psalm where there is a warning given to those who will not bow and submit themselves to God. And you'll see the relevance of that in the language of judgment that our Lord Jesus utters in what is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Luke's account isn't quite the same as, as Matthew's and, and Mark's, and if you were doing a study of the Olivet Discourse in detail, you would be wanting to refer to those passages a lot and see what they say, but I don't intend to make this or turn this into a series on uh, eschatology or views of the Lord's return, and I trust it will be of help to us. So we've gotten as far as Luke 21 verse 4, where we had the, the widow casting in all that she had, and we're going to read from verse 5 through verse 24. Luke 21 verse 5. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come, in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes shall be in divers places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not an hair of your head perish and your patience possess ye your souls. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, 
then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. Let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Amen. We'll end our reading there in the midst of this tremendous discourse given by the Son of God Himself. This is the very living Word of God. Receive it as such. Believe it to the saving of your soul. May we respond aright to it tonight. The people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to Thy Word, we're glad that in Judah God is known. Thou hast a people in all ages. Thou hast a people that are extending across the nations. Thankful for thy mercy. Thy mercy to Gentiles. Thy mercy to all the kindreds of the earth. What an awful thing it would be to live in a time when the truth was only known in a very narrow location on the earth. How merciful Thou hast been to bring the gospel to us and for Thy grace which has triumphed over our hearts. We say tonight, thank You for saving our souls. We give Thee praise and glory for Thy delivering mercy. Salvation is of the Lord. And we would all perish except we be made willing in the day of Thy power. Should there be some here still unconverted, make them willing, we pray. Give us words for them. Plead with thee, Lord, to sober us with thy word and teach us the lessons contained therein. Come, Lord Jesus, abide by the power of the Spirit in our midst tonight to extend thy glorious kingdom. This we pray for the honor of the triune God and in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you, I imagine, have at least heard of the Crusades, a series of military expeditions authorized by the Roman Catholic Church in an effort to recapture Jerusalem from Muslims. One of the details seldom mentioned in those who account such history 
is the context of religious fervor that was going on in the generations leading up to the First Crusade. There had been a, a widespread belief that Christ would return after a thousand years. And so in the year 999 AD, there was this invigorated fervor regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, a thousand years have passed since his birth. The coming of the Lord certainly is drawing nigh. Of course, a thousand years came and went, and then, of course, he began to look ahead a little and say, well, it must be 1033 AD, the year when our Lord died. That's when he's going to come back. And so, with all this increase of conversation, as I say, fervor around the subject of Christ's return, of course, these are the days before uh, Left Behind series and all the other things, that we, all the visuals that we have in our day. Yet, at the same time, this, that kind of spirit was among many, a desire to see the Lord come. And so, when these dates came and went, the question arose then, why? It's not that… <laughs> well, there have been some in history who have learned their lesson, and after having predicted or said that such, this was going to happen at such and such a time, and then it doesn't, they say back off and say, I've gotten it wrong, and maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, talk in such ways. Others, of course, they continue to recalibrate. We've gotten something wrong, our math isn't quite right, and they begin to throw out date after date after date. They won't back off from the folly of such a practice. And so whenever the, in the midst of all that was going on with the Muslims and so on, and the, the, the battles that were happening with the Byzantine uh, Empire as well, when the Byzantine Emperor appealed to Pope Urban II for help, asking him really with a thought to, to send troops to aid him in his battle against Muslims, Instead of sending the troops, the world got the first crusade. This is 1096 AD. I came to this passage, I thought about how eschatology can influence foreign policy. Our views of, of how things are going to end can actually dictate the decisions that we make, those especially who have the power to make such decisions. And it's no different today. Men have this strange desire to try and help God. He needs our help. This is the plan. We need to help him accomplish his will, which in fact was the motto of the first crusade. Deus vault, God wills it. And that was the cry, the rallying cry of that time. God wills it, that we go to battle. We need to reclaim these territories that have been taken. And if we reclaim the territories, then maybe the Lord will return. In our own day, we have our own bizarre ideas floating around. There are groups and views, and their views on eschatology drive their influence, as I say, upon foreign policy. And it's dangerous, and it's ripe for abuse. Telling people that this is how the end must be, these are the nations that are going to be involved, and as we see what's happening in the present hour, we must respond in this way or that way. As I say, it's ripe for abuse. We come to this passage, you're going to find that our Lord Jesus, much of what He says has been misunderstood. Now again, I'm, I would need to take all of what Matthew deals with to give an all-encompassing perspective on the Olivet Discourse and how it relates 
both to the generation in which our Lord spoke as well as to future generations. But we'll see some of that next week. We'll see how there are certain things that do apply to our day, at least have relevance for us as we look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The danger in looking at this passage, especially if you come with eyes that have only seen everything that the Lord spoke here in relating to something that's going to take place in our time, in coming in that way, when I tell you that much of what he said was specifically to that generation and must be kept in that context, you might think, well, are you denying that the Lord is going to return? And I would say, no, absolutely not. And he does touch on it. He touches on the fact that he will come in glory. However, there is huge significance for the generation that stood before our Lord. And it's helped for us to keep in context so that we don't run away with ourselves making application in our own day regarding passages that were never intended for us to take in that fashion. In fact, after the apostles had passed away and that generation had gone and miracles began to decline in their witness and power and those miraculous ministries no longer were driving the church forward in her witness, the Olivet Discourse, the passage that we've read at least in part here tonight, functioned as a powerful argument to confirm the Messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth. When the apostles were gone, And A.D. 70 comes and goes, and we'll refer to that just in a moment. But when Jerusalem falls in A.D. 70, what the church does is go back to the language of the Lord Jesus Christ and show again to their generation that the Lord Jesus said it would be so. Many of you know what occurred in A.D. 70. You're somewhat familiar with the fall of Jerusalem. What happened? In brief, a Jewish group known as Zealots spearheaded a nationalist revolt against the Roman Empire. It began in around AD 66 and came to an end in AD 73. In the middle of that uprising, the future Roman Emperor Titus led the Roman army against Jerusalem And after a period of siege, utterly devastated the city and turned the temple into smoldering ruins. Josephus, a Jewish historian living at the time, estimated that 1.1 million Jews perished at that time. Almost 100,000, 97,000 were taken captive and either sold into slavery are used as sport in the Roman arenas. But what is remarkable is the historic documentation regarding Jewish Christians. They took no part in the war, and they got out of there before things got really serious. Why? Because their Lord told them. The Lord Jesus had warned them in this passage that we have before us, and many of them took refuge just east of the Jordan in a little town called Pella. 
There they were preserved from the onslaught and savage retaliation of the Roman armies against Jerusalem. This is historic record. I don't have to argue the case for it happening. It is known. It's stamped there as one of the pivotal moments in history. Christians understood what our Lord teaches in this passage. They took it to heart. And when they saw, verse 20, Jerusalem compassed with armies, they knew that the desolation thereof was nigh. And they hightailed it out of there. Those which were in Judea, fleeing to the mountains, those in the midst of it, departing out, not to return to it. These be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. As we look at the verses 5 through 24, I've titled the message, Unsettling Days Ahead. Unsettling Days Ahead. And in dividing up the verses that we have before us, we'll see, first of all, unsettling occurrences, unsettling opposition, and unsettling outcomes. Verses 5 through 11, unsettling occurrences. In this portion, our Lord gives some idea of what is going to take place. Now, the scene is driven along by a particular observation of our Lord and what He saw them people say. Verse 5, As some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, He said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come, in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, it's helpful to remember that Herod the Great had engaged in this great renovation and extension project of the temple. And he advances it over a period of many, many years. And at the time that these words are spoken, people are coming into the city one year after the next. And remember, this is a time of Passover, so you have many visitors passing through, coming to Jerusalem for the feast, who would then go home again, and then they would, wouldn't return for some time. And every time they would come in, there would be advancements to the building. They would stand in amazement at what was being accomplished. We're told of the, the massive snow-white stones that Herod used, and some of them overlaid with pure gold. Now, these stones were huge, absolutely huge. The idea that they could be easily thrown down would make no sense to anyone who actually looked at these stones. Now, you think of the weight of an average vehicle, one, one and a half ton. The average vehicle weighs that much, and yet these stones, many of them, were 100 tons or more, the largest of which was five, 600 tons. So you're dealing with stones that would seem immovable. And yet what was to happen is that this entire structure was to be devastated and brought to the ground. So, this is what our Lord says, as they stand and admire the goodly stones. They're admiring the structure, massive structure, and I encourage you just to read a little more concerning the details and what we know by way of archaeology and historical record concerning the scale of the, the temple when Herod took to try and advance it to curry favor with the Jews. And our Lord says, these, these things, the days are going to come in which they're going to be it's going to be destroyed. These stones are going to be torn apart. 
And so verse 7, they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And upon that invitation, those questions, the Lord then launches into, as I say, what we know as the, the Olivet Discourse. And he begins to give them these, these certain indications, these occurrences that they are to look out for and are to watch for and not be deceived by. Verse 8, he said, take heed that ye be not deceived. Things are going to occur, and deception is something that will happen to many. People will be deceived. They'll be deceived by what is going on. So take heed, listen, that you are not deceived, that what might be the prevailing thing to happen, to be deceived, doesn't happen to you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near, Go ye not therefore after them. So there's going to be those who will rise up, say that they're the Messiah. They're going to be powerful, influential. They're going to have enough, let's say, charisma and authority or apparent authority that it's going to carry people away. He said, don't be deceived by it. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. And all these things going on, these certain events, these occurrences, these civil uprisings is how some translate the word commotions. When these civil uprisings happen, be not terrified. Don't allow fear to drive you to a response. Don't allow your natural response to these things to cause you to not pay attention to what I am saying and the words that I have spoken. These things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. So as you're looking for the end, and you see all these commotions happen, make sure you're not deceived by any of them. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. Now, in reading that language, Many are going to run to all sorts of things that happen, and they try, to, they try to put this into the future, but you're going to see, just in a moment, that this is in the context of, of that generation. And again, there's historical documentation that tell us of pestilences, of famines, of strange occurrences. And what we must do, and what I'm, I am refraining, I am not going to do, but what we, we must do when we're trying to break down particular language is that... We go to Scripture and see how Scripture interprets, interprets these verses. Now, I'll turn to you to some of it in just a moment. But there are Old Testament passages that tell us of things like this happening. I'll just say out, right now, out of the gate, Deuteronomy 28, for example. That passage that details blessings, I think it's the opening 15 verses, and then curses upon a people who will not hold covenant with God, who will rebel against God, who will turn their back on God. And you, you see the details there. Pestilences, famines, all sorts of occurrences, occurrences like, as if the world is being turned on its head. And in Deuteronomy 28, God says explicitly that this is me. I'm doing this because of your rebellion against me. Well, Jesus basically borrows from that kind of language because the same thing was going to occur. 
right there at that time, there was going to be these unsettling occurrences. They were going, I say unsettling because they would have the, the danger of driving people in the wrong direction, terrifying them, making them listen to false Christs who would appear to have the answer for the problems. This, there's nothing has changed. Some of you remember, I know some of you lived through Harold Camping, and you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you've actually witnessed and lived through this kind of event where a man endeavors to take advantage of people's fears and takes every horrific headline and pairs it with some scripture in order to drive you to a certain behavior. Well, it's not new. And the same is going on. Watch the television evangelists see others that write in their books. Again, what they're doing is feeding upon fear. And Jesus says, don't be terrified. It's all under control. Don't be terrified. Don't be driven by fear. Don't respond in fear. Don't look at all these things and then in your fear begin to look for a voice. Someone who seems to have the answer. What's Jesus telling them? The essence of this passage is, in the midst of upheaval, come back to the reliable word. There's a reliable word. Don't be listening to these false Christs. As I say, many of them exist in our own day. And for some reason, professing believers have this disease of naivety, <laughs> imagining that these men have their best interests at heart. I mean, there was times with, with Harold Camping because of his predictions of, of the end of the world. There were times that people were, 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 were so sincere in trying to exercise their faith. They wanted to make use of all the material substance right up to the very date, right up to the day that they were going to expire everything and see that as an expression of faith. Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to use it, distribute it maybe for good ends, maybe for carnal ends, depending on the person, but they're going to use up their material gains right up to the very day when he said Christ would return so that when that day comes, they don't have anything. And they were, again, it was an expression of trust. And that day comes and these people are left penniless. They have nothing. To say there are people in this congregation who, who lived through it up close and personal. They were there in PA and saw it for themselves. Horrific, horrific taking advantage of people. Well, as I say, it was no different in the first century. And these, these unsettling occurrences. And he's saying, take heed. Don't be deceived. There's going to be many, all these voices, be on the alert. This is where, child of God, you be a Berean. You try, you test what's being said. You test the spirits. You test what's being said against the Word of God. Don't be driven to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine. Listen. Be not terrified. There are things that must come to pass before the end. So you'll have all these horrific events, these wars, kingdoms fighting against one another, various pestilences and famines and so on. Fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. Then we have also unsettling opposition. It's unsettling opposition. In fact, you know, you know what I'm going to do, actually? 
what I want you to see before I move on, I scribbled this down. To go back to see what the Lord, what the Lord has done already is, is detail, is almost, as I say, give a, he's given a little window into this passage already and what must happen. Go back to chapter 13 of Luke. Just remind you of the fact that Jerusalem and what's to happen to Jerusalem is not a new theme for the Lord Jesus. Just uh, thought it should be better just to go back and look at these verses. So verse 34, well, even for verse 33, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. This is part of the, the judgment that in Jerusalem prophets are killed. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There's something that's going to happen to Jerusalem. The house is going to be left desolate. At the very least, this is the departure of the favorable presence of God out of Jerusalem. Left desolate. Absent of God's presence. It may go farther than that. But the consequences of God leaving Jerusalem desolate means that she is left under judgment. And this is what is brought forth. If you come with me over to chapter 19. Luke 19. Verse 41. Luke 19, 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. If you'd only known, if you'd only woken up and responded to what's happening, who's here? A day of mercy in which you live. But now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. It shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. The Lord has already given indication of judgment. He has used parables as well to instruct in this way as well. Luke 20, look at Luke, the 20th chapter of Luke. And you have this, this parable of the vineyard. I, I, I'm not going to read it all. But the parable of the vineyard, again, is, is, is very focused on judgment upon Jerusalem, Israel, the religious leaders especially. And the result of it, if you just look at verse 19, the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. He's speaking of judgment. And that parable goes on to show the, the, the destruction, the devastation, the judgment that comes upon those who seek to kill the son who has been sent. Now again, if you go to chapter 21, and if I can just help you see that 
the importance that's, that, that we see this in its context. If you go to verse 32, we didn't read verse 32. But Jesus says there, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, earth shall not pass away. He is, he is driving that generation to find their anchor in His words. To rest in His words. To find direction from His words. And not be, again, amidst all the upheaval and everything that's about to unfold. But He is saying it's this generation. This generation will not pass. Now in the Jewish mind, a generation is 40 years. And our Lord Jesus is saying, within 40 years, this generation will not pass. There won't be a movement out of this generation. And so within 40 years, that's what happens to Jerusalem. She falls, exactly as the Lord said. We're not to take this language and imagine it means something else than what it says, that this gen generation means the entire Jewish race. And so you can expand it right to the end of time. That's not what he's saying. And we'll look at that more next week, God willing. But I just want you to see these, these unsettling occurrences that he deals with from verse 8 through 11. They were to find grounding and foundation in his word and what he says to them, not to be unsettled by them. They have the tendency to unsettle, but don't be unsettled by them. But there is also, as I say, unsettling opposition. Verse 12, there's going to be op opposition, and this opposition also will have the danger of unsettling professing believers. Verse 12, but before all these, so before you have these famines and pestilences, before there's this great upheaval, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now, look, the, the human author, writer of this gospel is going to go on to have a sequel in which he will give ample historic evidence to the fact that this happened. That the apostles who stood before the Lord Jesus and were told, you're going to be persecuted and these things are going to happen to you in which you're going to be delivered to the synagogues and into prisons and brought before kings and rulers. That's what you see in, in, in Luke's sequel. And so as he's writing to Theophilus, who, who's not a Jew, and so even all this language of judgment with regard to Jerusalem has no direct application to him from all intents and purposes, what we can understand. He, he's, not, he's going to be separate from that. But what Luke does, what Luke does is equip Theophilus in writing the gospel and then giving the account of Acts. He's showing to him that what the Lord Jesus said would happen did happen and he is faithful and can be trusted. And so he's endeavoring what? To encourage Theophilus in his faith to strengthen his faith. And so the actual account that we have wasn't just for the encouragement of Theophilus, but as I say, for all generations, because after, after the apostles are dead and gone, and you've no more miraculous wonders and so on that attended their ministry, then you have this powerful, profound, prophetic speech concerning Jerusalem. And it happens in the very generation who heard him speak those words. 
And it all comes to pass exactly as he said. So the unsettling opposition has a number of factors. It has persecution. You see the context. They shall lay their hands on you. He's not speaking generally here. He's speaking to those who are before him, who trust him, who are faithful to him. He's speaking to them, this is going to happen to you. So don't, again, miss the context. And they were brought before leaders and stand and suffer. Verse 13, it shall turn to you for a testimony. It's glorious, isn't it? Again, he's settling them, isn't he? He's settling them. This is going to happen, but it will turn to you for a testimony. In other words, it will be an opportunity for you to declare your loyalty to, to me. That you belong to me. That you're willing to suffer whatever it might entail. Again, because of your loyalty to me. It will turn to you for a testimony. Peter, what is your great desire? The all betray thee. I lot. If anyone forsakes, I won't. I'm willing to die for you. Well, he was to be humbled in the immediate context regarding that because he did betray the Lord. He did deny him, I should say. But he had opportunity again to stand and be faithful and to, to make then a testimony, a public testimony, which is what happened. Again, I can't turn to Acts and show you where they stand before the religious leaders and Peter and John are beaten and told, don't speak in this name anymore. And what do they do? They go away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his sake. It was, it was a testimony. They were able to stand there and they were asked, by what power or in what name have you done this? And they're able to point and say, through Jesus, this man who was lame is made whole before you. It all turned to a testimony. And you see the advance of the cause, the, the multiplication of the church that actually arises out of these persecutions where they're brought to stand before the synagogue, where they stand before the Sanhedrin and they testify and people are being healed and transformed and they preach the gospel and thousands are being converted. It shall turn to you for a testimony. Of course, hearing that they're going to have these, these occasions of standing before the high and the lofty and the rulers, they might begin to be fearful about what they might say. And he says, settle it therefore in your hearts. Not to meditate before what ye shall answer. Again, what's he doing for his people? He's settling them. Now, I'm emphasizing this because this passage is used to make God's people be uneasy. It is harnessed and weaponized against even professing believers to make them feel fearful about what's happening, what's around the corner and what the headlines mean for the future and so on. And, are, and to make us scared that, that things are going to change and there's nothing we can do about it and we should be frightened and scurry away scared. And Jesus is, is actually bringing calm amidst all this turmoil. He's bringing calm. This will happen, but, but it will actually give you an opportunity to do the very thing you pray for. All for an opportunity to be bold for Jesus Christ. You'll have that opportunity. And don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll be right there with you. I will give you mouth and wisdom. 
which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. This, again, this happens. Luke accounts this. But Peter and John, especially Stephen, Stephen, <laughs> he drives them mad. Stephen drives them mad because of his faithful declaration of Christ. This promise, in such occasions, the Lord would be there, giving them wisdom beyond what their adversaries collectively could even possess. So there's persecution in this opposition. There's also betrayal. Verse 16, ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. Some of you shall they cause to be put to death. Well, you have this in various ways. You have those who forsook Paul at the last. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Only look as with me. The sense of, of running from those and even actual betrayals occurring. Of family members, and professing believers, and so-called friends will betray and result in the death of those who profess faith in Christ. But there's victory. There's victory, isn't there? Verse 18. Oh, I should read verse 17. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. So there's this widespread hatred that will arise. Again, we, we, we so want the whole world to embrace the cross and trust in Jesus Christ. And sometimes I wonder if we want it so that it might make our lives easier. Well, often the world is not in such a condition that it has any love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were themselves to experience this hatred for Christ's sake. But as I say, there's victory. Verse 18, There shall not an hair of your head perish, and your patience possess ye your souls. So there's victory here. There's victory first through God's sovereignty. They shall not an hair of your head perish. That's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Especially when some are told that they're going to be put to death, and yet not a hair of their head will perish. How do, how do, you, how do you pull that together? Well, either you talk about it in terms of, well, this will be true for some, but not for others. Certainly that's true about the death, but I think the, the comfort, there shall not a hair of your head perish, is meant for everyone. In which case, it can't mean that you're never going to die, and you're not going to suffer for the cause of Christ. But what it does indicate, again, when our Lord used language like this before, and sparrows falling to the ground, and every hair of your head being numbered, it, it was an insight into His sovereign governance over every detail. And that, that perhaps is the intention here. Sovereign governance, not hair of your head, will perish. In other words, even if you're brought to death, you will go, go through it in victory. You're not going to just die for nothing. But you're going to go from this life into the next life. You're going to know the victory of passing into life eternal. You're going to have, even in your own heart, that desire to be with Christ, which is far better. And so there won't be this sense of perishing. Rather, the sovereign hand of God will be with you through all of it, comforting your heart. And through Christian perseverance. There's victory through Christian perseverance because that's the sense of verse 19. In your patience possess ye 
your souls. It's an injunction to steadfastness. Why? Because he that endures to the end, the same is saved. As our Lord Jesus is saying, this is part of your strength. Part of the strength of my people is their patience, their ability to possess their souls in patience. That is to constantly wait for him, to trust him. Oh, let that apply, because this is upheaval. The world is being turned upside down in this first generation. They're being told all these things are going to happen, and it's going to come very close to them. They're going to stand before people who want to kill them, and some of them will give their lives. They will pay the ultimate price. Imagine you're being told that, believer. Imagine Jesus was telling you, some of you are going to die. You're going to die. Just, just get that into your mind, because that's what they're hearing. You're going to die. And yet, the strength of the people of God, the true people of God, as if that needs an adjective, but to, to help you understand, those who are truly the Lord's have this divine enablement, this empowerment that marks every child of God. It is patience in tribulation. It is patience in the face of persecution. Because what marks everyone else? Go and read the parable of the sword. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the trials, the, the temptations and all. What do they do? They, they take away the seed. The root of the matter turns out not to be there. But those who bear fruit, those who are truly the Lord's, they have this patience to endure. Again, I can't turn to it. Go and read that parable. You'll see it. Patience marks the true people of God. And he is exhorting them to continue in that way. Be patient. Oh, how impatient we are. We're always trying to hasten the Lord, aren't we? Well, we often we are. We're trying to hasten him. Hasten him out of our troubles. Hasten him out of our joblessness. Hasten him in terms of our sickness. We're always hastening the Lord, aren't we? We don't like difficulty. It's like trying to get, or just come, come quickly. And I'm not saying it's a wrong thing to pray, but I am saying this. Sometimes it would appear that he might delay. And in that delay, people fall off. When our Lord warns in the parable of the sower about the cares of this life and persecution resulting in a lack of fruit, when he when he says that, I don't think it's a stretch for us to understand that what he's dealing with in, in, in the main is not a one-off persecution, but persistent persecution. It's not a one-off trial. It's persistent trials and difficulties. Someone says something mean to you, denigrates your faith. One day, some anomaly day in which someone seems to be pushing against you, most, most will be able to stand that. It's the grind of being resisted and pushed against and hated. It's trials that never seem to end that we struggle with. 
patience. This is the answer. When there's opposition of various sorts, persecution, betrayal. Finally, unsettling outcomes. Unsettling outcomes. Come to verse 20. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies. I mean, this, this is the holy city, isn't it? This, this is one of the most famous cities in the entire planet. And the Lord is saying, you're going to see Jerusalem surrounded with armies. And when you see that, know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Here is where he reaches ahead in terms of what this generation will witness. There will be a visible desolation. The desolation thereof is nigh. This idea of desolation during the Olivet Discourse People go into weird and wonderful ideas. I think the simplest understanding is just taking it in context here. Jerusalem, compassed with armies, the desolation thereof is nigh. What's happening? Gentiles are going to come in and destroy Jerusalem in the place of worship. That's the desolation. Gentiles coming in to the holy place of worship, unwashed, uncircumcised, and trample the temple to dust. And so, with this they are exhorted. Let them, verse 21, which are in Judea, flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. The Lord Jesus had uttered the destruction of Jerusalem. He had said it would be so already. I showed you that. And if we can just take a moment and go to Deuteronomy 28. I just want to leave this passage in your mind before we close here. Deuteronomy 28. Here's what to keep in mind when you're reading the Olivet Discourse. Keep the entire context in mind. Everything Christ has been addressing as he comes into Jerusalem, his language of lament over them for not coming and repenting and not recognizing the day of visitation, his language that they're going to be destroyed, that enemies are going to cut trenches around them, the parables of coming judgment. This is not general judgment. It's not general judgment. It's judgment as a result of breaking covenant.
covenant. This is a nation in covenant with God. What Jesus is declaring to them is, you have broken the covenant. Judgment must be poured out. This language is fleshed out in Jerome 28. I encourage you to read the entirety of the chapter, but if I can just focus your attention, because time is almost gone. Verse 49, Jeremiah 28, 49. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, that shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thy kine or flocks of thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee. He shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fenced walls come down wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land which the Lord thy God hath given thee. I could go on. Just to point this out, this happened. Now you could point to the Babylonians and you'd be right. But this is a form of judgment. This is what the Lord is saying. When you rebel, this, this is the kind of thing you can expect. And so the Babylonians came in, and now the Romans are coming in. And it's all in accordance with what God told His people would happen. It's covenant breaking. That's what's happening. Judgment for breaking covenant. If you think God's judgment upon the ungodly is bad, and it is, you can't begin to comprehend the kind of judgment that occurs to those who have had the truth and turned against it. This is why the warnings in Hebrews are so severe. Because there were people who had professed faith in Christ and claimed allegiance to the truth and were in danger of turning back. Now there are some of you here and you have been exposed to the truth, some of you for years. You don't know you can't recall a time in your life in which you did not know the gospel. You've always known it. I wish I had the language to express to you how dangerous it is to know the truth to even profess interest in the truth 
then finally to turn your back on it. The worst hell is reserved for such people. I don't say that lightly. It's said of Judas because he was such a person, better that man he had not been born. Better he had not been born. If there is someone here and you know the truth and yet you're playing fast and loose and you're trying to live life according to your own terms and there isn't real heart obedience in your life and love for Christ, I urge you I urge you to consider your ways. Because when God comes with judgment, it will seem so far away, like it may do to you right now. It seems so far away. You can't imagine judgment coming right now. But when that right now happens, it will be so sudden, so surprising. And you'll wonder what you did with all the time you had. Jesus says, Verse 23, woe unto them that are with child. Imagine this, the blessing of having children. He says, woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And remember what we read in Deuteronomy. They are not going to spare, whether old or young. They are not going to distinguish. They're going to destroy everyone. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there's where we have indication where he's pointing forward. We're in the times of the Gentiles now. Those times will come to an end. And there's more to come. And we'll look at that next week. Let's bow together in prayer. Are you saved? Are you? sang in Psalm 76 Thou even thou art to be feared and What man then is he that may stand up before thy sight if once thou angry be When God comes in wrath no one will stand before him 
and have any defence. Repent. Believe the gospel. And if you need counsel and help, let us know. Lord, this is thy word. May we receive the prophet intended from it. Though many years have passed since these words were uttered, they come with howling reality to anyone who is part of the visible body of the people of God. Sober our hearts. Help us to mend our ways. May we do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thee, our God. Save those not saved. Expose the false professor. Make them concerned because the root of the matter is not there in them. Let them know that thou art ready and willing to forgive. Hear us, be with us, and in our fellowship tonight, draw near, and in all our responsibilities in the week ahead, give strength and power. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The only wise God, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.